0: morning everybody. Money. It's always at the top of the national conversation, isn't it? Taxing and public spending, incomes and inflation, cost of living, corporate bonuses, banking, stock markets, superannuation, budgets. Just about the only thing that most people can agree on is that there's never enough of it, right? we could always use a little more that desire for more that's so easy to condemn in others yet so easy to justify for ourselves this morning we're talking about putting off greed especially as it relates to money a few weeks ago david uh, brought us a lesson on covetousness uh, or greed which is the same thing as greed more generally So there's obvious overlap with that lesson. Um, But the Greek word that we find in the New Testament translated as greed or covetousness is pleonexia, which has this idea of wanting more, more of something, consuming more of something, having more of something. It's that idea of more, the sense that nothing is ever enough. It doesn't matter what you have or what you need, You just want more of it. And this, of course, can apply to basically anything we might want or want more of. But possibly, I think, the most insidious and most emblematic thing that we desire more of is money. If you just think of all the stereotypes of greed, what comes to your mind? Fat cats in their towers counting their money. Um piles of cash, suitcases full of cash, corporate raiders buying and selling, destroying companies, whatever it takes, just as long as it brings in more dollars, right, that pursuit of more. I think perhaps our desire for money is particularly problematic for a few related reasons. Firstly, it's through money that we can gain almost anything else that we might desire or covered. We can't have much of anything more without first having more money in order to acquire it. So once we have that money, this whole new world of desires or appetites becomes open to us in a way that it wasn't before. It multiplies our temptations. Secondly, We can keep our money issues relatively private if we want to, can't we? We don't go around with our bank balances written on our T-shirts or on the top of our social media profiles. It's easy to escape criticism for our attachment to money if it's conveniently hidden away on a bank statement in a drawer somewhere. And finally, I think because... Money can be used for good things as well as bad things. It can be easy to camouflage our desire, our greed uh, for money with a veneer of respectability. I'm just working long hours to provide for my family's needs, aren't I? Um, I can point to all these good things that I'm doing with the money that I'm getting. Um, never mind that it's also attached to all sorts of unhealthy um, desires and ends as well. So I can make our pursuit uh, of money look respectable. Jesus speaks most plainly about the dangers uh, of attachment to money in the parable of the rich fool, which we'll read here from Luke chapter 12. We read Jesus say, Watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed, Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, This is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, You have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. So I want to highlight two things from this passage. The man started out doing a good thing. He's working in his field and he's reached this plentiful harvest. There's nothing wrong with that, right? Just working hard. The problem comes when he first stores his surplus and then secondly, he trusts in what he has stored. Rather than share his surplus generously with his neighbours who might be in need, instead he decides to hold on to it for himself for his own benefit. And then he makes the mistake of believing that because of this surplus, he can put his feet up, take it easy and rely on that surplus, that store that he's created to meet his needs long into the future. This is the danger of wealth. We want to keep it for ourselves and we put our trust in it. We'll talk a bit more about the trust side of it in a moment. But I just want to point out how significant this idea of storing is to the notion of greed or covetousness. We noted in the definition of the word that it has this idea of more and wanting more. But that has this implication of building something up, accumulating something, doesn't it? Having more of something, building a pile, a reservoir, a store. Um, and we see that in the example of the rich fool here, don't we? You had to build bigger barns to, increase, to, to store this greater yield. Whatever the expense was to build these new barns was justified by this need to accumulate more and to store it, to hoard what he had acquired. We see this idea also in a lot of our own associations with wealth when we think about the term wealth. As much as we imagine wealth being spent prodigiously, if you think of mega yachts and expensive penthouses and all the ways that the rich people spend their money, we also imagine it being stored in great quantities, don't we? We think of banks and their vaults, lock boxes and safes, warehouses and barns. You might say that's wealth at rest, sitting in a store uh, doing nothing, kept to oneself. So just keep that image in the back of your mind of, of wealth being stored as we continue in our study this morning. What might we say is the opposite of greed? If we're putting off greed, what are we putting on? David touched on this a few weeks ago so I don't need to labour the point but I think there are two opposites that address these two aspects of greed that I've mentioned. The accumulating and the storing. And those opposites are contentment and generosity. The greedy person wants more to accumulate more but the contented person is happy with whatever they have at the time. They're happy with that same level, whatever that is. As Paul writes in Philippians chapter 4, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Paul wasn't seeking for more. Sometimes he had more, and that was fine. Sometimes he didn't have more, and that was fine too by Paul. Whatever he did or didn't have, he was content with that. Also, the greedy person is holding on to what they have, but a generous person happily shares what they have with those around them, especially those in need. Consider these instructions Uh, In Deuteronomy chapter 24 to the Israelites, When you're harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat the olives from the trees, don't go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, don't go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless and the widow. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. That is why I command you to do this. See, don't greedily keep everything from yourself. Share the surplus with those who have nothing. Be generous. Don't be stingy. Don't go over your fields or your trees a second time, just in case you missed anything. Be content with what you get on the first attempt and let the rest be shared uh, for those in need. That sense of generosity um, instead of stinginess. Notice how stressful also it can be to be greedy, both in the seeking of the more and in the holding and the keeping. And by contrast, how peaceful it can be to let it go and learn to be content or generous. If you're always wanting more, seeking more, it's stressful. If you have a lot and want to keep it and protect it, that's stressful too. But learning to trust and be generous brings great peace. What are some other outcomes of greed? Like I mentioned earlier, greed can be a gateway to more temptation and all kinds of other problems. Notice what Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6. The godliness with contentment is great gain. We brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So if you lack this contentment instead and instead pursue these riches and this money... You're opening yourself up to a world of hurt, leading, leading to all kinds of terrible outcomes, um, even, as he mentions there, to the point of losing your own faith. And that just isn't worth it, is it? We can rationalise it by believing that seeking these riches solves all our problems, but as we read, it just makes our problems worse and, in, and more numerous in ways that we won't even foresee. Greed can also lead to loneliness. In the parable of the rich fool that we read earlier, um, he stores all this wealth for himself, but he makes no mention of friends or family with him. Nobody's that he's sharing this wealth, this um, comfort, you might say, with anybody. It's just him by himself. Yes, he's fat and rich and comfortable, but he's also alone. Is that worth it? It's also just a generally ugly life. In Matthew chapter 23, we won't read it, but Jesus condemns the Pharisees for their greed and self indulgence. And he uses the image of neglecting to, how they neglect to wash out the inside of a bowl as, as, the, as well as the outside of the bowl. When you think of the dirty inside of the bowl that they haven't cleaned out, it's just this, a nasty, ugly image, isn't it? Filthy. They've left themselves filthy inside because of their greed and self-indulgence. They have this outside veneer of glamour, of riches, of goodness, but inside the life of greed is just filth and ugliness. So if there are so many problems with greed, what motivates us to be greedy? Why why do we pursue these things if they're so damaging to us? I think there's two main reasons. First, we seek glory. And we assume by having all these things that we're seeking after and acquiring, lots of impressive, expensive things... People will be impressed by us and give us this glory that we desire. Look at me and look at what I've done. Look at what I have and I've accumulated. Look at all my stuff. I must be special. I must be good and talented if I've earned all this, right? gets us that glory. But we know that it's only a fleeting glory and it's not going to last. As we just read in 1 Timothy... Um, We brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. All the problems we talked about um, mean that this pursuit of glory through our thing uh, isn't worth it. Just as a minor aside on that point, but I think it's worth mentioning that as an opposite, Uh, even though generosity is an opposite uh, of greed we can also be generous to the point of self-glorification. If you think of the example from Acts chapter 5 of Ananias and Sapphira, they tried to impress everybody with their feigned generosity when they sold their property, but they kept some of it back for themselves. Of course, they were generous in giving as much as they did, but more important than that to them, they wanted to be seen as more generous Um, than they actually were. They wanted their cake and eat it too. They wanted to be seen to be generous, but also greedy at the same time. So even generosity uh, can be a shield for an underlying greed. But the other motivating factor for greed, I think, and perhaps the greatest factor, is an issue of trust. We tend to trust what we have, what we already have, and what we already know. It's easier to trust what we can see in front of us. Uh, It's easier to trust what we have rather than the source from where they come. It's easier to trust what we have today rather than what we may have or what may come along tomorrow. If you think of the image of a flowing river, the water comes towards us, passes us for a moment, and then it's gone downstream. If you don't trust that there'll be more water coming along in the stream, um, it makes sense to grab as much of the water as you can while it's there. But if you trust that there's always going to be more water coming down this flowing stream, just around the bend, you can be content to take just what you need at the time. There's no need to be greedy, is there? It's like a subway train. You don't need to run for a New York subway train because you always know there will be another one along in a few minutes. I don't think they even bother with timetables. But the trains just keep on coming. The Brisbane trains? You'd better run for it, buddy, because you'll be waiting for half an hour at least, won't you, if you miss it. Because you can't rely on what's coming next. You have to leap on the train that's right in front of you. You grab what's in front of you because you don't trust what's to come. <clears throat> but this is what God promises us about money and riches. This is what we read in Hebrews chapter 13, which Johann shared with us earlier. It says, Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Notice Why? Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. God's saying, I'm the water upstream that's always coming around the bend. On the New York subway train, there's another one coming. I am coming. I'm always coming. You can trust me. Don't worry. Don't be greedy. You can be content with what you have today because... I am always there. True, there may be rich times and lean times. That was, of course, Paul's experience. But trusting God for everything puts these daily concerns into a much bigger picture. Notice what Paul goes on to remind Timothy in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6 about those who were rich. He says... Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. In this way they'll lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. First notice that the issue that Paul identifies here is trust. If you're rich, don't trust or put your hope in your wealth. You think you can trust it, but you can't. That wealth isn't the New York subway train. Trusting God is the subway train. It's God who richly provides for us. So we should trust in him. Even if you have everything in abundance already, even if you're wealthy today, trust in God, not that wealth. But then what does he instruct them to do? To do good, to be generous and to share. For some people, perhaps, the means that God is using to be this provision for them is through the generosity of those who already have much through the rich. So if you have much, be this conduit of God's provision. Be that part of the flowing river of goodness. Be the subway train that can be relied upon to provide for those in need. Be the means through which God's rich blessings flow to those around you. This is true life. This is how we truly live, both now on earth but also the life to come in heaven. Notice how Moses counsels the Israelites before they enter the promised land in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Moses says, When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. But, But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors, as it is today. Notice, there's nothing wrong with working hard and enjoying good things, even becoming wealthy. In fact, it's to be expected. God expects his people to live this way in the land he promised. But as you do that, Don't get ahead ahead of yourselves. Don't forget where it all ultimately comes from. Don't then make the mistake of presuming that it's to your credit or your glory that you have all these good things. Remember, it all comes from God. Don't trust the things. Trust God. And of course Moses reminds them that God has this track record of providing for his people, even when that provision seemed unlikely or impossible. Water from a rock in the middle of the desert? God provided. Manna? What even is manna? God provided. God led his people through a barren and dangerous desert and their shoes didn't even wear out. That's God the provider. We can trust him. We must trust him. See, I think these passages start to paint the picture of a different way of living with money and wealth and things. I'll call it the kingdom economy. Because when we talk about being content or contentment as an antidote for greed, we aren't talking about a static state of passive idleness or laziness. You'd say that the rich fool was content when he put his feet up uh, with all his wealth. But he was also idle. He became idle through his wealth. And he valued this idleness, this laziness, over any other use he might think of uh, for his wealth. And I think this idea of value, what we value, is connected to this issue of trust that we've been talking about. We value what we trust, and we trust What we value. So when we think about this kingdom economy, we should be asking ourselves, what do we value? And more to the point, do we see money as the true measure of something's value? Is is something's value summed up in its price tag? Consider these two parables uh, from Matthew chapter 13. Jesus says. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. What's Jesus saying here? Is this just simple investment advice that if you can find a bargain you should snap it up immediately? That you should definitely buy something for $1 if you can sell it later for 2 Is that all Jesus is saying? I don't think so. Jesus isn't talking about the maths of the sticker price of fields and pearls and other treasures looking for bargains. It's about a much deeper understanding of value that goes beyond merely the price involved. The man sells everything. He sells everything for a single pearl. There's no suggestion that he's doing this so he can flip it later for a profit. Um, No, he wants to possess this pearl because the value to him of the pearl is incomparable to the value of whatever he sold in order to have it. Value, Jesus is saying, in the kingdom economy, is not measured by money. Think also of the widow who puts two small coins into the temple treasury. They weren't much, but they were, we read, all that she had to live on. Was that a wise move for the widow, putting all she had to live on in the treasury? After she gave all she had in that way... What did the next few days look like for her? Did she go hungry? Did she have to work extra hard to make up this shortfall from her gift? It wasn't a very practical act when you balance it on the scale of worldly value. But in the kingdom economy, Jesus praises the widow, saying that she gave far more than the rich had, even though they'd given so much more in dollar value. But more in what way? Certainly not the monetary value. But in the kingdom economy, her trust and her generosity is worth far more than the value of anything her two coins could buy. Another instance we can consider is from John chapter 12. There we read, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honour. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about half a litre of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. What on earth was Mary doing? I don't know exactly what nard is, but she has a lot of it, a litre, and it's expensive stuff. It's valuable, right? But she uses all of it in one extravagant act. Even if we know that Judas's motives weren't genuine, doesn't he have a point? A year's wages. That's a lot by anyone's measure. We could have done so much good with that money. What a waste, right? But to Judas's surprise, Jesus praises Mary. And you see that clear contrast drawn there between Mary's actions and Judas' actions. Mary, who days earlier her brother had died, only for him to be brought back to life by Jesus out of the grave. How valuable is that compared to what the value of the perfume might have been? How valuable to praise and honour the one who had done this for her her brother and her family. This man who had given them back their brother from the dead. And then there's Judas who can only see the dollar signs. Notice that Jesus doesn't criticise Judas' attitude because he was a disingenuous thief, although that obviously says a lot about him Uh, and what would soon transpire obviously. But Jesus implies that even if Judas' motives were pure and he genuinely cared to give the value of this perfume to the poor, Mary's act was still noble and justified, even a preordained act of generosity. You see, in the kingdom economy, there are things of higher value even than the noble act of helping the poor. It's interesting. Jesus frequently instructs his disciples or would be followers to sell what they have and give it to the poor. And many, like Zacchaeus, do just that. But you notice that Jesus never says, ask people to do this with any implication that this is in order to solve the problem of poverty forever. It's not like he's saying, If you all just gave everything to the poor, we could solve poverty. Um, As Jesus says here, matter-of-factly, we'll always have the poor with us. There will always be poor among us. But Jesus' concern when he instructs us to give money to the poor, to even sell all we have and give it to the poor, isn't because of what it can achieve for the poor, although that's obviously a good thing and we've talked about God's providing uh, for the fatherless and the widow, etc., in such a manner. But his concern is for what it does for us, what it does for the giver, what that choice reveals about the heart of the giver, what it reveals about their trust, their generosity, their obedience. These things... In the, kingdom of, in the kingdom economy have true lasting value that's far greater than the dollar value of whatever the gift might be. What Mary's gift said about her and her heart, her gratefulness to Jesus, and what it said about her understanding of who Jesus was, was more valuable than the price of that expensive perfume. The widow's trust and her generosity was worth far more than the two coins she gave. That one pearl was worth far more than anything the man could sell in order to possess it. Paul in Philippians chapter 4 describes the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus for whom Paul had given up all things And he considered all these things garbage in comparison to the value of being a part (coughs) of God's kingdom. Do we still see money as the true measure of all things? Or can we see beyond that to see the true value of life and truth and God's kingdom? In closing, I just want to take us back to that image of the river. The greedy person hoards and stores. They're stagnant and lifeless, like a swamp. Ugly, murky, dingy, stale, lifeless, dead. But the trusting, content and generous person is like a flowing river, abundant, flowing, pouring, giving, living. Which of these images is more attractive? Which would you rather be? Which world or which kingdom would you rather be a part of? Jesus comes to bring living water, to be living water. Heaven is a place with a flowing river of life. So let's not be stagnant, dead pools of blessing where blessing and goodness come to die. Let's be running rivers, giving, sharing, flowing, carrying blessing and goodness beyond ourselves to one another and into eternity.